All right, welcome to our 1015 service. So glad that you're here. You're like, hold up, I thought I was at the 945. Well, you slept in, and uh, the rest of us were here at 715 for our 715 service this morning. And uh, it's a good day, though. God bless whoever came up with time change, all right? Uh, but, but it's gonna be a good day. We're preaching through the book of Romans, and so if you got a Bible, open it up there to Romans chapter one. It comes uh, right after the Gospels and the book of Acts. It's the longest letter that Paul wrote, and that is why it's first in your New Testament. They just arrange it literally from longest to shortest, but it's also the best letter that he ever, writ, uh, that he ever wrote. In fact, it's called the greatest letter that's ever been written because it is just phenomenal in its explanation of the gospel. And that's why we're just preaching through this, uh, this book, 16 letters, or 16 letters, 16 chapters to this one letter. And it's meant to be read as a letter. And so I encourage you the first week, and I want to encourage you to, again, if you have not read through this from beginning to end, I would highly encourage you to do that because it is a letter. Uh, there wasn't chapters and verse divisions when it was first put together. And so letters are meant to be read from beginning to end. And so I want to highly encourage you to read it because they build on each other. Again, all the verses just one continuous thought. And Paul unpacks literally for 11 chapters what the gospel is. And then chapters 12 through 16 explains our response to it. And so we've just been going through that and we're going to finish out chapter one today. And so we're going to be primarily in verses 26 through 32. I'm going to back up and hit verse 24 and 25 to continue uh, or kind of go back to the thought of what we left off last week and then pick it up for this week. All right. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time together as we do every week. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to preach your word, knowing that obviously I, I don't deserve to do that, but because of your grace towards me and saving me and now giving me the gift to do this, God, I pray that you would not only bless the preaching of the word, but you would bless the hearing of it. And God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth in it, because it is truth, God, and, and so often in our culture that is debatable about what truth is, but help us to know that it's in your word and you've given it to us for our instruction to let us know more about who you are and, and how we need to respond. And so God, I pray that by your spirit today and the preaching of your word, that it would be blessed. And we ask that in Jesus name. Amen. So Romans chapter one, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about how for the first really 17 chapters, Paul kind of builds out or intros into what the gospel is. And then in chapter one, verse 17, he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And you would expect Paul to go right into talking about the righteousness of God and how we're saved through faith. And, and that's what you would kind of think. But then Paul seemingly takes a U-turn into verse 18 when he says that the gospel not only reveals the righteousness of God, but it reveals the wrath of God. And then from chapter one, verse 18 until chapter three, verse 20, he builds out this, what we would just say today, the bad news of the gospel. The bad news is this, is that God has to judge sin. And so when he judges sin, that's not a good thing for us because God is a just and holy God. And so he is pouring out his wrath. But then in chapter three, verse 21, he's gonna pick back up the connection from verse 17 of chapter one and build out faith. And that's what we're gonna talk about on Easter. And the reason why this is so important is because before you and I can understand the good news, we gotta understand the bad news. Or else the good news won't be good to us if it's not in the context of the current condition that we find ourselves in, which is not good. So for seven weeks, we started last week, we're looking at the wrath of God. And so if you're, especially if you're new today, you're like, oh, I knew I should have slept in. Uh, I just want you to understand something. Yes, we are going to talk about 
bad news, but we're not going to end it there, all right? Because the bad news sets us up for the good news. But we do have to have an honest conversation because, one, we're preaching through the letter and it's in there. But, two, it's actually helpful to understand what we've been saved from. And so let's jump into Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Again, we ended last week's message with these, and we're going to pick it back up again because of what it says. It says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So three times Paul says that we exchanged. He's already said it once in verse 23. He says it right here again. He's going to say it again in verse 26. Three times he uses this same exact word. Two of them are about how we exchange the glory of God and worship something God created and not the creator himself. And in response to that, Paul's going to say three times that God gave them up. God gave them up, and that's literally the title of today's message, because what we're going to see is, since we exchange the glory of God and worship something other than God, then God gave us up. He gave us over to something. Now, this phrase here, God gave them up, literally what that idea is, is God gave them up over to another authority, And so the thought process is simply this. God, as a father, says, okay, you don't want me as your authority? You don't want me as your God? Then I'm going to give you over. You're out from underneath my authority now. What that means is I'm going to give you what you want, which is life without me. I'm going to let you experience what life without me is like. And then he's going to go on to explain what life without him is like. Now, this thought process, any parent can understand because as I'm a parent of two kids, as we parent our kids, we are the authority. I always tell my kids this. I was here first before you, right? I was first. Therefore, I'm your authority. One day when you have a kid, you'll be first and you'll be their authority. And my dad used to always say that to me, right? He would always say it a little, not as nice. He'd say, boy, I brought you into this world. I could take you out. And he was big and he took a horse out once. I'm like, yes, sir. I'm going to listen. And so the idea of authority in a parent's mind is simply this. I have the authority. And so therefore, you, you obey and you respond to me. But there are times as a parent where we tell our kids, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And they're bound and determined to do it. So there are times we might give them over to what they want. So for them to have an opportunity to realize, oh, okay, you want authority? You don't want to listen to me? All right, sucker. You're so smart. Here you go. I'll never forget when Jackson was a couple years old. I can't remember how old. In fact, he was young enough. He doesn't even remember this now. We were talking about it before the service. But when he was young, Lindsay was gone somewhere. And he was, again, a couple years old. And and I was watching my son, which, man, just by the way, to save you some heartache in your marriage, it's not babysitting when it's your own kid. All right? And so I'm I'm hanging out. with. It's called fathering. So I'm fathering my own kid, hanging out. And I I had built him, or him and my wife, this coffee table. And on one side of it was just a regular coffee table. You took the lid off and flipped it over. And there was a Thomas, the train set. It was like one of the best Bob Vila moments of my life. I built this thing. I was very, very, very proud of it. And so it was on the non Thomas, the train side, and there was a candle there and the candle was lit. And Jackson kept wanting to touch the candle, kept wanting to touch the candle. And I kept telling him, no, right. I'm your authority. No. 
But he was bound and determined because he's a wretched sinner, right? And so he, that's just true of all of us. And so I, I had a thought in my mind, all right, you want to put your hand over the candle? Candle, Go for it. And I'll never forget, I mean, this moment is seared in my memory. He puts it, and I've said this, this story here several times before, but he puts his hand over the candle, right? And it wasn't just that he did that, it's that he looked up and copped a smile. He's like, <laughs> like, I'm getting away with what you told me not to. I'm like, yeah, just see what happens next. And within a second or two, that smile went away, right? It was like, screaming and crying because his hand was burning and he had burned his hand. And so I can't remember when Lindsay got home, she was probably mad. I'm like, he did it, right? And so, the, but the idea was, the idea was very simply, my son didn't want to listen, so I'm, I'm going to give him over. I'm going to give him over. I'm going to give him up and say, all right, see how it goes if you don't listen. And that's the idea. We as human beings... We didn't want God as our authority. We didn't want him. We exchanged him. Again, this is what happened in Genesis chapter three. When God created man and woman, put them in a beautiful garden, he gave Adam a command and he said, don't touch that tree, you can have everything else. And then he gave him another command to be fruitful and multiply and all they're concerned about is the one tree they can't have which if I could go back and slap Adam, I'd be like, bro, seriously? You had all of this and a naked woman and you wanted a tree that you couldn't have? <laughs> and, and, and just a forewarning, I do wanna warn you, we are gonna have a conversation today, an honest conversation, because it's where Paul goes next, about sexuality. So if you need to check your kid out, or not check him out of here, but if you need to, to go out into uh, the lobby and check your kid in or, or, or hang out somewhere else, I completely understand that because this is always a good th reason why we check our kids in through fifth grade, because sometimes we're going to have conversations. This is in the Bible. So what God says here, he's, he says, I'm going to give you over to that. If you want life without me, because they traded in the glory of the mortal God and worshiped what he created. So God gave them up. And he's gonna say that three times. And the first thing he said he gave them up to is impurity. It says God gave them up to impurity. Then he qualifies it and he says to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. See, God gives us commands of what to do with our bodies. He gives us commands. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Therefore, honor God with your body. So God gives us certain commands of what we should do and what we shouldn't do with our bodies. Why? Because he created them. He formed them. He made them for certain things. But we don't want God. We don't want God telling us what to do because we've exchanged the glory of God and worship something else other than God. And so God says, all right, I'll give you over to doing what you ought not to do with your bodies. But here's what I want you to see. We're going to get into this more, but here's what I want you to see. You got to see the sin beneath the sin. Because Paul's going to give us a list of sins here. He's going to give us a list of sins. But before we talk about those, we have to understand the sin underneath the sin. And the sin underneath all sin is idolatry. 
Interestingly enough, you go back to Exodus chapter 20, and maybe you have a church background, maybe you don't, but in Exodus chapter 20, after God frees the nation of Israel, he gives them the 10 commandments. And in the 10 commandments, the very first command is this, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. And then from two to 10, and, and interestingly, verse, uh, commandment number two is you'll have no images. And then every other commandment is simply how we are to behave. Well, here's the thing. If you break commandments two through 10, you broke one already. Because commandment number one is you'll have no other God before me, which means you'll have no other authority. And so that is the sin that's underneath all other sins. And when we exchange the glory of God and worship something else, then that's gonna lead to all kinds of other sins. So the sin is the sin where we worship something else other than God. Again, very interesting to me, the second commandment is you'll have no images. You'll make no images. But the Bible says, when we exchange the glory of God, we started worshiping images. So how do we know we broke command number one? By commandment number two. What image do you worship? What image? Now again, we look at more animalistic cultures and they worship an animal and we're like, that's crazy. But yet we worship the creature we see in the mirror. You're still a creature. You're a created being just like an elephant and elephants are great, but you worship a creature too. You trade it in and you worship the image rather than the one whose image we bear. And when that happens, we fall in love with our own bodies. We're preoccupied with our own bodies. And we start doing things with our bodies that God says we should never do. He calls them dishonorable. Dishonorable, which means it doesn't bring honor to how they were made or what they were for. And when that happens, verse 26 and 27 happens, which Paul goes on to say, Let's read that. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable things with their body, dishonorable passions, the exact same word there. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this is what I was telling you earlier. We got to have a conversation about the biblical sexual ethic. And the Bible does have one. The Bible has a biblical sexual ethic. But here's what's so interesting to me. And I've always saw it. I've always wondered. And, and really, it wasn't until I studied this week that I think I made this connection. But here, Paul uses the exact same word exchange as he uses the other two times. And the other two times, he talks about us exchanging the glory of God for something else. But now he talks about on this level, another exchange took place. And I've always often wondered, why did Paul go there first? Why did Paul, in a conversation about idolatry, go straight into human sexuality? Like, what's the connection there? Why, why did he go there first? And the reason why I think he went there first is because when you go back into how God created the world, marriage was the very first institution that God created. 
God created everything that we see. He created man from the dust. And then he says in Genesis chapter two, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he puts him to sleep, takes a rib, makes the woman. They wake up and Adam's like, this creature different than all the other ones I've been naming. This one I like, I'm attracted to. And bam, some of the coolest verses in the Bible, Genesis chapter two, verse 24 through 26, it says they were naked and felt no shame. Amen, hallelujah, right? And then chapter three, I mean, they only got two chapters in. (laughs) Then chapter three, Satan shows up and he instantly starts questioning God's word. Instantly starts questioning God's word. Let me say it to you like this. Satan didn't show up until there was a marriage. He didn't show up until there was a marriage. And he attacked the spouse of the one whom God gave the command to. It was a punk move. (laughs) And then they sin, if you know the story, and God shows back up and they hide. For the first time, they hide from God and God says, where are you? And they said, we were naked and ashamed, so we hid. The very first thing that Satan attacks is the marriage relationship. And the biblical sexual ethic is this. Let me explain it to you as clearly as I can. The biblical sexual ethic is one man, one woman, in one covenant of marriage for one lifetime. That's it. And sex was made for marriage. Marriage was not made for sex. Sex was made for marriage. Because... God, again, gave the command in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, be fruitful and multiply, which is why I was joking about earlier. I do not understand what the mess was wrong with Adam because God made sex. And and Christians, you need to understand, and I want you to hear me. Please hear me. I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just trying to be biblical. Christians have the greatest right to claim the greatest authority for sex. Why? Because our God invented it. And here's the cool thing about our God. He made it pleasurable. He didn't have to, but he chose to. Why? Because God is after your joy more than you are. God's after more joy than you are. He didn't have to. And yet Christians, we always act like culture created it. And we always act like somehow in some way we need to be ashamed about that. Listen, I used to tell teenagers this all the time. Sex is right. But to teenagers, I just always told them it ain't right now. But it's right and it's good and it's godly and it was made for marriage. And what is marriage? One man, one woman, one covenant, one lifetime. That's marriage. Our culture doesn't define marriage. The Bible does. God does because he made it. So therefore, anything outside of that, anything outside, any sexual activity outside of that, the Bible calls sin. Any sexual activity outside of one man, one woman, one lifetime, one covenant is what the Bible would use the word sexual immorality. In fact, that's the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for that word is porneo. What English word do you think we got that from? Yeah. So is pornography a sin? You better believe it is. But here's what I want you to hear me say. Every single one of us 
When we are born into this world, we are born sexually broken. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. We are born into brokenness. So therefore, we all have disordered sexual desires. Every single one of us. If you act like you don't, you're lying. All of us struggle with this. And we definitely don't live in a culture that celebrates the biblical definition. And, and sadly, a lot of us, even though we grow up in Christian homes, we are not told and celebrated about the Christian definition. But that's where kids need to learn it. And, and trust me, I drove a school bus for years. They learning it at school. Whether you're telling them or not, don't think that, oh, my, my kid, no, she don't know. No, she know. <laughs> and, and she or he better know it from you. And they better know it from here. Because, hear me, one of the primary ways, one of the primary ways that we reveal that we've traded in the authority of God is we think we have the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. That's what Paul says. It's one of the primary ways you know. But there's a couple things I, I want to be clear on and I want to affirm. We all have, like I said, broken sexual desires. All of us are born into that. All of us have desires that feel right to us, but fall outside of the natural order of how God created it. So therefore, there's all different kinds of ways to express that brokenness. All different kinds of ways. And we have attractions that we have to deal with. And the church just hasn't done a very good job of dealing with this. Again, it was taboo to even talk about this in church. I remember some of y'all grew up in church and be like, we would have already shut down service right now. Sex and money, don't talk about them in church. Interestingly enough, the Bible talks about them a lot. So there's all kinds of desires that we have that are disordered, but here's what I want you to understand. We are not our desires. We are not our desires. You wanna know how I know that? It's because you and I will not be sexual beings forever. Where do you get that, Jason? From Jesus. You can go look it up later. Matthew chapter 22, Luke chapter 20. Twice, Jesus was asked the question about marriage in eternity. They were trying to trip Jesus up, which is a bad move because you ain't gonna trip Jesus up. He just happens to be God. And so they asked him a question about marriage in eternity and he was like, you crazy. He didn't say it like that, my paraphrase. But here's what he did say. In this age, you're given in marriage. Remember, biblical sexual ethic, sex is for marriage. He says, in the next age, you won't be married or given in marriage. You'll be like the angels. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's not saying for some of us, like, oh, thank God I'm not gonna be married forever. <laughs> do not take that mentality and please do not say that to your spouse, all right? <laughs> what is he saying? He's saying marriage right now is for the purpose of procreation and God made it pleasurable. But in the 
eternity, in the next life, in the next age, there's no need to procreate and there will be no procreation. So therefore, in eternity, you and I will not be sexual beings. So here's the disordering. If we make our sexual identity the highest thing about us, then that will not last for eternity. Because marriage is not an eternal thing in a human sense. You want to know what is eternal? Marriage is the metaphor that God uses to describe his relationship with us. Even in the Old Testament, God calls himself a husband. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about how marriage is a picture or a metaphor of the mystery of Christ and his church. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands like the church submits to Christ. When we see Jesus again, the Bible says that he will come back for his bride and he's the groom and we will have the great marriage supper of the lamb. So the reason why you and I will not be married to each other in eternity is because we as the church will be married to Jesus. And so everything that happens here in marriage is meant to be a metaphor of that marriage. That's why it's the example that Paul uses to describe first. So if that's true, we will not be sexual beings forever. We do have disordered sexual desires now. Then we are not our desires. And so I want you to hear me say this. Same-sex attraction is a real thing. It's a real thing. And the church, again, for so long, didn't have a good grasp of this. And when somebody was wrestling with same-sex attraction, we automatically wrote it off and just automatically went to, well, that is sin. Listen, you can't choose your temptation. You can choose your response to it. I was born into a family where we didn't talk about this, and according to my counselor, I was sexualized at a young age. I'll, I don't know exactly the age, but around four or five, I'll never forget. I used to go deer hunting with my dad all the time, still do. He's a believer now, trust Jesus. So none of this is true of him now. But back then, I'll never forget, I walked into one of my dad's hunting clubs and I walked into this room and there were stacks and stacks and stacks of pornography magazines everywhere. And I was four. Growing up, my father was an alcoholic. So that runs in my family. So I was born into brokenness. I didn't choose that. I didn't choose those temptations for myself, just like you don't get to choose the temptations for yourself. And so when it comes to attractions, we all have disordered desires. And so there are real attractions that we struggle with. And I want to affirm that. I want to affirm the fact that every single one of us have disordered desires and every single one of us struggle. Maybe it's not with that sin, but you want to know Paul doesn't end there? Look at where he goes next, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that's just another way of saying they didn't see fit to see his glory. They exchanged it again. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So not only did God give us over to disordered bodily passions, but he gave us over to debased mindful thinking, which those two are connected. 
Why do we do the things we do with our bodies? Because we first do them in our mind. Jesus said that. Now look at this next list, verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, uh-oh, teenagers, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Did you find yourself in that list somewhere? Dang right you did. Because you want to know what God says when he says he gave them up? You want to know who the them is? You. But you want to know what the church has done a horrible job of? Calling out some sins over others. Let me just say it to you straight. Buckle up right now. It's about to get a little turbulent. Every single one of us have sinned. Every single one. Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And so therefore, none of us can look down on someone else who struggles with the sin that we don't struggle with. One of my pastor friends said it, and I just think this is amazing. He said, you cannot simultaneously look down your nose at somebody else and up at the cross at the same time. You can't do both. If you're looking down your nose at somebody else, you are not looking up at the cross. And you want to know what the message of the cross is? You are them. And this is where we, we, we put some sins as worse than others, like sexual sins are worse than others. Listen, when it comes to God, they are not worse than others. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 6, yes, there are some sins that you commit that are outside the body, some that you commit that are inside the body, which means they may have different earthly consequences, but they do not have differently eternal consequences. All sin is sin is God's mind. You wanna know how I know that? He just put gossip on the same level as murder. But isn't that how we talk in the church? Why well, I, I didn't kill nobody. I mean, I, I'm not a murderer. And I, we always, I'm not an ax murderer. I'm like, I don't know, why, why an ax? I don't know, I mean, machete better? I don't know, like. And we have these different things. We're like, well, I'm not them. Well, guess what? If you have a them, you are them. There have been just as many people that have killed people with gossip than they have with murder. And this is one of the ones in the church house, boy, we good at. We just do it in the form of prayer requests. Right? And we normally start it off with, have you heard? Let me, if you start off a sentence with, have you heard, you should shut your mouth. Because if they're not there, you shouldn't be talking. But yet you don't hear pastors getting up and calling out gossip, right? Talking about doing stuff with your body. We'll rail against sin and then do a potluck. As if gluttony wasn't one of them. Right? You see what I'm saying? We've got like grade sins. We grade them. Oh, this is a grade A one. Mine are like a grade F. I mean, you know. Disobedience to parents. It's on the same level as evil. Maliciousness, covetousness, haughty, insolent, boastful. This one, it just trips me out. Inventors of evil. I think Paul just wrote that one out. Like, whatever I miss, all the other crap you invent. <laughs> I used to tell teenagers all the time, the problem is every new generation invents new ways to sin. 
I would hear something, I'm like, what? I didn't know that was a thing. But here's what you and I can never do. You and I can never classify the sins of them. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short. And I don't even think that this is an exhaustive list. But I do know you can find yourself in this list. And it's high time for the church to quit calling out some and missing others. Now, the church must stand on the truth of God's word. Yes, we affirm the biblical sexual ethic. But I also think it's high time for the church to do something else. I think it's also time for the church to understand all of us struggle with sin. Paul's going to say this in Romans chapter 7. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. Who can free me from this, Paul asks. He answers it. We'll get to that in Romans 7. But look at verse 32. It's interesting to me that he ends on this. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. What things? Notice he didn't put that verse 28. What things is he talking about there? Is it just the sexual things? No. It's everything else that was in that list, all 21 things. Like, I, I just gossip a little. Well, you deserve to die. <laughs> like, for real? <laughs> yeah, you want to know why? Because that ain't all you've done. And you don't want to know why you gossip? Because you traded in the glory of God. That's why. That is the sin. All the rest of these are just an example of what God gave us over to because we sinned that sin. But then he goes on like this. He says, those who practice such things deserve to die, that not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here's what I think is the dividing line. It's one thing to practice them. It's another thing to approve them. I struggle with sin just like any other human. Don't believe me? Ask my wife. I struggle with sin. And just because I struggle with sin doesn't mean I'm not saved. The danger lies in not if I continue to struggle in them, but once I start approving of them. That's the biblical dividing line. Because confession and repentance is a part of life. Martin Luther said all of life is one of repentance. So there are things that I still wrestle with, things that you wrestle with, and the things that you wrestle with may not be the things that I wrestle with, but here's the deal. I can't judge you for wrestling with them. I can't, I mean, we'll get into that in chapter two. It gets worse next week. <laughs> but what I can say is, listen, I understand the struggle. It is real. You're struggling with sin just like I'm struggling with sin. And I'm struggling with sin just like you're struggling with sin. And so it's one thing for us to be, be in this struggle because when we trusted Christ, he saved us from the penalty of sin. And now by his spirit, he is saving us from the power of sin. And it's not until he returns that he will save us from the very presence of sin. 
And so we are in the process of being saved. I want you to understand that. And so right now, sin still has power over our lives. And by the spirit of God and the word of God, we have to work on getting this, this thing back in control under order. Like we submit ourselves back to God and through the Holy Spirit, he gives us freedom over the power of sin. That's a process. So it's one thing to be a part of the process of being freed from the power of sin. It is another thing to approve of doing the things that God clearly calls sin. And so it's not just in the practice, it's in the approval. And so as a church, I think we need to be humble with each other. We need to be grace-filled with each other. And understand that all of us are struggling with this, whatever sin it is. And we can affirm that. We can affirm the struggle without affirming the approval of it. And that's a weird place for the church to be in, right? It's a weird place. But what's the solution? The solution is the gospel, is the good news. This is why I don't understand how people can be Christians and be arrogant. In order to be Christian, you have to admit you needed saving, that you're a sinner. Well, I don't sin like them. Well, you're worse because you don't even see it. So the solution is we trade it in. We exchange the glory of God and we worship something other than God. The solution is, even though God gave them up, God didn't give up on them. He gave up his son for them. Even though they exchanged his glory, he exchanged Jesus' glory for them. And on the cross, he put on Jesus the punishment, Isaiah 53, 5 says, that we all deserved. So the solution to our disordered desires is God. God came and exchanged back what we had exchanged in. And now today, if you'll trust in that, you'll trust in Jesus, he will save you from the penalty of that, which means the wrath of God is no longer on you. And he will also save you from the power of it in the process of following him. And guess what? In that process, you're going to take a step forward and five steps back. Doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that God's breaking that power. And sometimes what God does in order to break that power is he gives you over to it. He says, oh, you see how this goes. When you realize that walking without me ain't working, I'm right here. And so as a church, it's a weird place to say we affirm the struggle, but we don't affirm, or we, don't, we affirm, but we don't approve. But it's not a weird place to say that Jesus affirmed our struggle by becoming sin on the cross. And God already approved of him. And when I exchange places with him, now I stand as one approved. Not in my sin, because Jesus took that. 
but I'm approved in his son as long as my life is one of confession and repentance. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you'll be saved. So if you confess and repent of that, whatever the sin is, then the wrath of God doesn't remain on you anymore because Christ took it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our life. Thank you that even though you gave us up, you didn't give up on us. When we sinned and got burned, in Christ you came and rescued us and healed us. And so God, I know there are people listening or watching right now that have never trusted Jesus, who have never confessed and repented of sin, whatever that sin is. And it's simply a confession of saying that the sin beneath all that sin is thinking that they could do this without you. So God, I pray right now that you'd open their eyes to see the truth about who Jesus is and save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. And if you've never trusted Jesus to exchange your sin, to take the wrath of God and you to receive the righteousness of God in faith, if that's never happened, then I'm gonna give you an opportunity to simply confess right there we are, which is just a way of praying. You don't have to do it out loud. If you want to trust Jesus for the first time, pray with me. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent your son in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me. Forgive me for what I've done wrong. I'm trusting in Jesus alone to trade places with me to take your wrath and to give me his righteousness. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close, but if you just trusted Jesus for the first time, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you, thank you. We got men and women walking around gonna put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put your hand down. But then those of us who Maybe you've already trusted Christ, but you're just struggling with sin. Again, I want to affirm that struggle and to say that that's really what it means to be human. But the key difference is don't give up that fight. Don't give up that fight. You have to wake up every day and fight sin. You have to wake up every day and fight your flesh. We all have disordered desires and sometimes we give in to them. And the grace of God is big enough to cover that. But we have to keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. And as we fight, the spirit of God will give us grace, give us power over sin. 
but just because you tr struggle doesn't mean you're not saved. And so if that's true, then that means it's not only true for you, but it's true for those sitting next to you. And so let's work hard to continue to be a church that is grace-filled, that is honest about our struggles, but not judgmental about other struggles. We are struggling with sin, and it may be sexual, it may not be. It may be relational. It may be envy or covetousness or anger, whatever. There's all kinds of ways. But God, help us to be grace-filled towards each other. And church, come on, man. Let is, let's be the kind of place that understands there is none of us that deserve Jesus. So therefore, all of us are in need of grace. And so therefore, none of us can be arrogant. So let's help each other in this process of being freed from the power of sin. Let's be honest about our own struggle. And let's commit to be accountable for one another, not just to one another. So often the church just says, be accountable to somebody. Well, we're also accountable for somebody, which means I'm accountable for helping them get up when they fall. We have that kind of church, man. That kind of church, people would love to be a part of that. Father, we pray, not only do we affirm your word, but God, we affirm our own struggles. And so God, help us to not only know that we need Jesus, but we need each other. And as we walk through this letter to the Romans, help us to see in ourselves that we all struggle, and not to be judgmental, but to be the kind of place where we're all honest, but at the same time, we don't approve. We don't approve of what you call sin. And that's a balance that we gotta walk, but help us to do it in grace, in Jesus' name, amen.